Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of React Roundup. My name is TJ Van Toll and I will be your host today. And with me on the panel, I have Paige Niedringhaus. Hey everyone. And our special guest today is Christian Boat. Christian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So why don't you start by telling people you know, who you are, what you do, why you're famous, all those good sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say famous, but we'll get there in time. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm from Romania, from Transylvania, more specifically from the Cluj city. I started working with Flash. Flash was my introduction to programming. I think I was amazed that you can actually draw and then with code, you can just be lazy about it and duplicate your work <laughs> just, <laughs> and then connect them. And I, I tried to build a game. I think that was like my first programming memory because I didn't have any games. And I was like, well, Flash, that's the way to build games, <laughs> which is kind of interesting because it led me to a path to become a Flash game developer worked on a couple of games there. But then in 2010, I had to pivot towards JavaScript because, you know, Flash kind of died at that mm -hmm. point. And since then, I've been um, working on all sorts of projects from custom devices that were hooked on e-bikes. They were running JavaScript. That was a scary project. And then, oh, you wow. know, <laughs> enterprise level <laughs> stacks with, you know, serverless, all the hypes, microservices, everything. And then more recently, I, I got more into consulting and contract contracting and also open source. So for the last four or five years or so, I focused more on open source, which I started contributing to Preact initially. And I'm also part of the core <laughs> team at Preact. And then I created Goober. <laughs> wow. Okay. So. Man, there is there is a lot we can get into. I know we we want to talk a lot about your your open source work, but first, I I think I need the story about how you have JavaScript running on an e bike. Can you yeah. can you give like a little <laughs> more detail on that? Because I I feel like I can't leave that hanging. <laughs> I yeah, need a little yeah. more detail. <laughs> it was I don't know, it was so, such an awesome experience. And throughout the years, whenever I reflected on projects that I worked, that was like my highlight up until I know a few years ago because it was so awesome. Like you could. I know I was working on a chart for, for example, drawing a chart on a canvas with data mm -hmm. from the, you know, from the driver, from the engine. I would just build an image on an SD card, plug in the device, hook the device to the bike and just took it for a ride and <laughs> see it working or not. 
Must be enough. cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it must have been a fun one to to test too, because I don't know how you, you kind of had to like take it out to use it. Yeah. <laughs> Initially, we didn't have any like controllers, like knobs or whatever for on, on like physical knobs to make sure that I know to simulate some environment. So we actually had to build it and take it for a spin <laughs> to see if it works or not, and then look at the logs and stuff like that. I think the project is still up and running, but I think they switched from JavaScript to Qt, which mm-hmm. uses yeah, which, which uses QML, if I remember correctly, which is kind of JavaScript, but not really. I mean, I think they still can run JavaScript, but it's described in a in a in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I think cool. I I understand a little bit about. It sounds kind of like MQTT, which I think is an IoT programming. I don't even know if it's a language, but it's more like a way to transmit events or data from one, I guess, producer to the subscribers. So, yeah, I guess if it's constantly spitting out data, that's probably a pretty good way to do it. I think it was even more kind of low level than that. Um, (laughs) I think we we had some custom JavaScript, uh, custom web view embedded in Qt. And then we would just assume that an API is available globally, like, I don't know, engine or whatever. And we would just, I don't know, got, got called when new data, and then we would display it, I don't know, with, with our own in-house framework. In JavaScript. <laughs> yeah. No. QT is a very old school, like, cross-platform UI toolkit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One cool. of the nice ones. <laughs> So there's a lot of open source stuff that we want to get into today, but maybe we can start with Goober, which is, first of all, just a really fun name. Maybe you can start <laughs> by just explaining what that project is, like what problem it solves, where it came from, stuff like that, and then we can go from there. Yeah. So before Goober, I was working on Preact, and you know, the basically the ideology in Preact is to keep it small under a certain constraint, and by learning that and doing that, that mentality kind of like settled in my mind. And it uh, it spoiled me <laughs> in the sense that whenever I was working on something, it got to be small. So I was working on a website and I was I wanted to use style components. The API is great. You can use it straightforward. But the size was just like the, the library site was greater than the whole website. And at that point, I, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the library is not large. It's just 12. My website was kind of small in content. <laughs> so the JavaScript, that's why. But, you know, that kind of like sidetracked towards me creating actually a library <laughs> that kind of replaced that components in that sense. And, you know, I was, you know, I was using it heavily from then. But at some point, I wanted to open source to see, you know, what others are thinking and if it's useful or it's just a small project for me. And mm-hmm. when, when I thought about the name... Uh, I was you know, trying to come up with this, like, I don't know, small but memorable, memorable, I don't know, <laughs> describing in a sense. And at, at some point, I was just uh, playing with the idea of, you know, uh, CSS in JS, but at the cost of peanuts. And then I quickly <laughs> went to see what the Thesaurus has <laughs> in store for peanuts. <laughs> and I found the term Goober, and it was <laughs> free on NPM. So, <laughs> you know. I like it. Yeah, yeah. So it was just fitting. Yeah, it was like everything just fit into place and it was meant to be, I guess. <laughs> and, and you got a challenge. You got a, what is it, a dollar to shave a bite off of Goober? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, That's really uh, cool. <laughs> Make some money. Yeah, 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 yeah. Has anybody cool. actually gotten, has anybody gotten a dollar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More than a really? dollar. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. 
up until now, so I call it the Great Shave, shave Off Challenge, and it's still yeah. up and running. <laughs> I'm working on the Great Shave Off Challenge Season 2, <laughs> where, you know, it's going to be more in store. <laughs> <laughs> Does the number go up? Is it now? Yeah, two, yeah. Did you be like two dollars? No, two dollars a bite. So there were more than twelve participants, I think, that shaved around sixty bites of Gruber. Nice. Yeah, which you know, it's small. <laughs> it's I'm small a kilobyte. Enough. That's something. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And um, for the season two, I think I'm gonna have to. 10x the sum or some point or something like that because at this point it's so small that it's really difficult to find something that would really shave i know substantial amount substantial i yeah. mean like more than five bites yeah. <laughs> so i'm I don't really know. curious I have to... for for anybody who's worked with typical styled components is goober is the syntax very similar or how did you make such a, a compact version i guess of css and js yeah that's a that's a good uh, segue to the trade-offs <laughs> part of stuff. <laughs> so, you know, we have the established libraries like style components, emotion, and most of them offer the styled API, which has the all the elements name, right? Style dot something, which is the tag name of an element. That basically adds size. So to me, that looked like a convenient developer utility, as in, you know, it's just there and you can use, you have an autocomplete that can tell you the tag name. But in this, the same way, you could just type the tag that you want. And also styled API supports passing it, not just the tag name, but also a, a reference to another component. So, you know, to me, it was like, well, let's just keep it simple and always specify what kind of components you want. If it's a if it's a string, as in a name, that means you want a native HTML element. If not, it's, uh, you know, it's just you're basically extending a previously defined component. So I think a large chunk of the size of the libraries are coming from that list of elements. So just mm-hmm. by trimming that down, I think, just I, I, don't quote me on this, but kind, kind of like m- maybe four or five kilobytes of JavaScript just from the list of elements. But that was like the first step. And then <laughs> I went more and abstracted away, which meant getting into the regex world <laughs> and me find trying to find a way to parse the SAS like like syntax that style components and emotion and everyone else else is supporting via stylus because style component and emotion, I think I think most of them. They don't have their own parser for CSS. They use another com- another library called Stylus, which is, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, around two or three k at this point, which is super small. In you know, <laughs> for parsing the, the the styles, so that that was me attempting to use regex, and yeah, pretty much I I was able to do it with the, with the regex rule. Actually, two because one is for cleaning up the. <laughs> The new lines, spaces, comments, or whatever, and only the other one is for actually parsing the content into I know some some sort. I call it ASD, like an abstract syntax yeah. tree, but but it's not. It's just uh, an object <laughs> with key and values, so it doesn't have any metadata or stuff like that. So one question I have: you have this the challenge to make the project smaller. Is are there certain like do you pursue small size like almost at all costs? Because lots of times they're you can make code changes that will make a project smaller, but will also make it harder to understand or harder to read or maybe less performance. So I'm wondering how you like 
see those trade-offs, given that size is very important to you. But I'm assuming there's some line that you wouldn't cross in terms of like, you have to keep this thing somewhat maintainable, right? Yeah, that's a good question. And there were lots of requests of adding, I know, all sorts of APIs or changes to Gruber. And I was open to, to those changes, but they were adding size. So I have this sandbox locally, which is not good, but whatever, where each change, I have to see if the tree shake version of the output is under 1K. <laughs> so each time someone, I don't know, comes up with something that wants to introduce, I take it locally, build my own stuff, then, you know, look at the output. And if that passes the 1K limit, then I'm going to have to say, no, sorry, <laughs> this is just too large for Uber. <laughs> and there were occasions where I was like, oh, I wish I could have this in Uber. So it's, I don't know, at, at this point, I think it's just uh, me being a bit silly about the size. <laughs> <laughs> Pun intended. I get it, though, because that, that's sort <laughs> yeah. of your unique way of standing out, right? Because you're not trying to be feature complete or anything, because if you wanted something more that had more features or offered more stuff, there, there are libraries for that. So I, I think yeah. it kind of makes sense, because it's sort of preserving your the reason for this library to exist and that people would want to yeah. use it. So Yeah, this, this kind of also opened up a new set of users for Gruber, which I don't think usually you see it. So if you want to build a website with style components, you, you choose just style components in motion or whatever, or Goober, right? <laughs> you, you build a <laughs> website. But at the same time, there are library authors that, you know, they want to have some sort of style component-like library inside their own library or just using it to be able to, you know, describe the components or style their third-party components or the user-defined components. And it's kind of it's kind of weird to add a twelve kilobytes third party or dependency to your yeah. own library. So I've seen folks using Gruber just for that. For example, I'm gonna I'm gonna call out <laughs> React Hot Hot Toast. So I'm using <laughs> it whatever because just because they use Gruber. <laughs> no, it's actually cool. <laughs> it's a cool <laughs> project, but that's a way to keep your project small, right? To use something that's small by definition. And then you can build on top of it. So yeah. So if I'm using Emotion, mm -hmm. can I also use Uber? How does that work? Yeah, yeah. So they don't actually, you know, step on each other's turf, so to speak, because we yeah. all we use our own style tag or yeah. element, and we use different types of injecting the styling in in the browser. Emotion they worked uh, tremendously at uh, at the whole internal way of injecting styles. And they have this uh, out of the box. I'm not sure if if they still have it, but you know uh, it was there previously, uh, where each style component would also have a style tag render near it. So that means mm -hmm. on the server side, if you render it via I know render to string or render to node stream, you would have the styling there without the need to have server side render preparedness. I guess you know to have a way to. Collect the styles on the back end and attach right, them like to make a CSS issue. file yeah. and yeah, okay. Yeah. Extract CSS. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, and yours yeah, does yeah. the extract CSS route? Yes. Yes. Same okay. way with style components. So on the back end, if you want to use Goober, it's fine. You can use it, but you gotta, you can, you know, roll up your sleeves a bit and, <laughs> and just call an extract CSS function. You'll get your CSS and then you can place it wherever you want. Nice. nice. So forgive me, this is probably mm -hmm. a dumb question, but 
if you were using React, I'm sure that Goober would work with that because that's typically where we think about styled components. But would it work in something like a Vue project, Angular, or just a plain JavaScript project as well? Yes. So Goober, by definition, is agnostic. Doesn't really care which kind of library you use. There is a, so the ceremony, I would say, to initialize Goober is to, if you use kind of like a JSX syntax or a pragma, uh, method to create your components, you're going to have to tell Goober's setup function that, you know, this is my pragma. This kind of like open up the possibilities as in, you know, you can use Vue, X, right, with their JSX syntax, you can use React, Preact as well, and also Solid. Solid. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So right. I, think, I think they still have it. I haven't checked in in a while, but they have Goober as part of their style components package. Mm, so okay. yeah, they have I think they have another one there, but they also have the Goober one. So that was really cool to see. Yeah. But one other usage of Goober it was in uh, in web components. So oh, that oh, was yeah. that was really surprising when I um, when someone from the community reached out and was like, well, I'm using Goober on web components and this is how I do it. And I tried as hard as possible just to capture that usage in a, in a in integration test, just so we don't lose it. So yeah, even to today, awesome. yeah, it's really cool to have something that's really not tied for library. Because initially, I was thinking of okay, let's just do separate entry points without a setup function, because that wouldn't add a necessary size to the package. Because there would be like kind of add-ons. So if you use it, you're you're gonna have it in your bundle. If not, you're not. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I've just kept it agnostic and yeah, turned out fine. Oh, one other that I thought of is Svelte. That one seems to be an up and coming <laughs> oh, yeah. framework. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I've seen Svelte using Goober as well. Someone from the Svelte really? community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, there's not much to what's going on inside Goober, right? It's just uh, at the call side, <laughs> we're just collecting the CSS in either on the server, we're collecting in, a, in an object. But in the browser, we're collecting in a, basically in the exact style element that's in the page. So whenever you render something, the style is going to be appended. If it's defined already, it's not. It's skipped, right? So you get the performance boost from there. Yeah. The I think library. it's interesting because, yeah, was, I mean, Svelte has its own way of doing CSS. And, and as as you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'll have to look into it. But I, I'm, there's, there's all sorts of usages. Yeah, very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is funny. Like, put something out there and just see the random ways that it gets used. The the library use case, like other libraries using Goober, is especially interesting to me because I can totally see it. Because most of the time, for average websites, like when people ask about size, normally it's like a kilobyte here, kilobyte there. It's not going to matter too much for your application. But for like a distributable library, those are the people that create those are very cognizant on size. Like you said, like you don't want to take yeah. on a 12K dependency, but for like a UI component, you might want some CSS and JS because it, it would help improve the logic of what you're doing. So it's, I'm, I'm just sort of talking through it in my head because I think it's kind of fascinating mm -hmm. and it, the, the library fits that niche so well. It's really interesting. Yeah. And one other usage that it, it just popped into my head right now. So with the whole Tailwind hype, right, <laughs> and popularity, <laughs> there's this project called Twin.Macro, and 
it's basically at compile time, right? You, you're using this is bef- this this was before I think Tailwind in JS. I think they have their own just in time compiler. So this was before. So the author created a way that you can use style components, emotion, and Goober as well. So, but you could, but all the component, all the styling definitions, even though you're using the style DPI, are going to be ending up in um, in Tailwind like class names. So it's kind of cool to see that as well. Very interesting. Cool. So you've worked on quite a variety of open source stuff as well. And you mentioned that you've done a lot of Preact stuff. You're on the Preact team. And I think that's a library that hasn't come up super recently on this podcast. So I'd love mm-hmm. to maybe you could start by just people that haven't heard of the library before. Could yeah. you just describe like what Preact is, what it does, why you might want to consider using it? Yeah. So you might already kind of have an idea <laughs> what Preact is aimed at doing <laughs> or wants to be. So the, the whole idea of React is to offer kind of the same React or an alternative to React, but in a smaller size, right? So I think at this point, React with React and React DOM, you're going to go past the 40, 40 kilobytes in size. So Preact is going to stay under four. Initially it was three, but you know with all the addition recently and keeping up with the APIs, that grew a bit. But yeah, it's, I mean, I'm biased, obviously. So <laughs> don't take my word. Just check out the, the, the project project before you use it. So do your own due diligence. But, you know, I mean, I, I've been so success, successful at using it. And, you know, I, I've enjoyed it so far. And that's why I got into it, right? So, yeah. So can I use all the same component libraries that I do with React? Can I use them with Preact? Yeah. So Preact. Really? Yeah. So Preact has this compat entry point, which kind of adds the necessary APIs for a third-party library to think that it's using React, but actually it's using Preact. Obviously, you kind of need some kind of build step or aliasing uh, <laughs> going on, mm-hmm. right? From React yeah. to Preact Compat, and then from React DOM to Preact Compat. It's the same package, so you don't need a DOM package and a, and a core package with Preact. So that's uh, that's also a nice alternative, because you don't need like two separate dependencies to to build something on the DOM. Yeah, So, but you can use them as, as, as long as you alias them correctly, which is not so difficult in today's time. <laughs> but yeah, you should, you should be fine using it. So I can ask the same question we asked of Goober. Presumably there's some reason why Preact is like 10 times smaller than React. <laughs> like I'm assuming there's some trade-offs you're making with Preact as well, right? Are there like features that don't work or there, I, I'm assuming there's something. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if any anyone looked at uh, React's code base. You know, it's pretty explicit. As in, you know, it it goes on and on, and you know, it's is is that for a reason, right? Uh, because there are a lot of contribution there, and it's a popular package, and it needs to be to have this kind of architecture. Now, with Preact, things are more not that obfuscated, but they're more, you know. They're, they're little gotchas, right? So the type checking, for example, I don't know, the, the diff engine also. So from your first pass over the code, you might not get it. <laughs> so you're going to have to, you know, just go through it and, and learn it and maybe clone it locally, play around with it and so on. Cause that's what I did. That's how I got into it. We, we had a bug. I was hitting a bug and I wanted to fix it. And, you know, looking at the code source initially, it was like, mm, not that straightforward. But it was a learning experience. And I think if you yeah, you know, if you like that kind of stuff, you get hooked. Yeah. But I wanted to mention something something else. Yeah, that 
Preact, for example, doesn't have the synthetic event system that React has. That also are good, but in some cases, folks are kind of confused when, because the synthetic event system in React, uh, it's kind of abstracting away or, you know, just kind of stays between the user and their events, <laughs> the, the, the UI events. So mm-hmm. when someone from coming from vanilla JS or just the web expects an event to be just an event, in Preact, you, you get the raw event, but in React, you get the synthetic event system. But with Preact, we don't have that because we didn't have to abstract it away. So does Preact offer server-side rendering similar to how the Next.js framework would, for instance? Yes. Yep. So we're we're working on uh, version 11. We're now Preact as version 10. By we, I mean the team. I'm, I'm not that involved anymore. I wish I can, but just the time constraint is... Uh, is difficult at this point. So version 11 would have the server entry point in the same package because today the server, the server package that renders uh, your Preact components to a string or a node lives in another package, which is still part of the Preact ecosystem, let's, let's call it. But now we're going to move that to the, to the main core package just so because, you know, it's useful to have everything in one place. So yeah, you can do server side rendering, you know, streaming whatever you need. The only thing I think that is not going to be out of the box in Preact is the server components, <laughs> which there there is ways to implement it. And the team has experience with a few different ways to integrate it. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I think Preact will, will, will not have the server components paradigm baked into yeah. it. I mean, yeah. server components is a pretty dramatic shift from how we've all been building React applications up until now. But I always love the people who ask the co- the library maintainers like the day after the React core team comes <laughs> out with something, you know, have you updated your docs yet? Does it work? Can we do suspense and server components? And it's like, no, they just told everybody that this is even a thing. There's yeah, no right. way we're ready yeah. for it. <laughs> <laughs> is, yeah. it is it out? Is, I, I, it's always kind of in perpetual beta. The server component stuff. I thought it was still in beta, but it's yeah, you know, like experimental. If you put up a feature flag, you can try it out, kind of thing. But, yeah. yeah, I think it's in Next. I think you can get it in Next now too. Very yeah, possibly. it's 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 experimental in Next as well. So mm-hmm. you can yeah. you can use it, but there's flags everywhere to tell you don't do anything serious with don't it. Don't put it in production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't use it if you carry your sites up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hey folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, I mean, it seems like a lot of things these days are kind of pushing us more toward productivity, right? We install VS Code extensions, we do CI/CD, we kind of get this stuff off our plate, automate as much as we can, and move quickly. And one of the tools that I tell people to get is something like Raygun. Uh, do you want to just explain real quick how Raygun can help with the productivity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's several fold. I like to think of Reagan as um, almost being like a full-time engineer on your team that's keeping an eye on things and is able to report the important faults or performance bottlenecks so that you aren't guessing. Um, and so that's one element. But then to that point where we store as all of the data we possibly can uh, on the context of the error or performance issue so that you know we integrate with source control systems, you can jump into our APM and get method-level timing details with the source code right beside it. So if you're looking at it going, why is this page so slow? 
you know, um, you can usually just eyeball the code right there and then. So speeding everything up, which I think is really important with, you know, our industry is under so much pressure right now. Yeah. You know, um, you know, we've got to try and get people be more efficient because we, we're not going to have a whole lot more people suddenly. Right. Absolutely. And I, I just I love that idea. I've done plenty of optimizations myself. Right. And having an APM tool that will actually say, yeah, uh, this is the slow code. Right. So instead of me trying to guess or look at it and go, oh, do I have an N plus one query here? Yeah, it just tells me where the problem is. And that's really powerful in something like Raygun or... Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Iron Man. And, and you know, the, the, the idea is that I would love a virtual Jarvis that's just going, hey, there's this <laughs> thing. Do you want me to go fix this? Do you want me to solve yeah. that? It's like, that, that's what we need to get to. Yep, absolutely. Well, if you want uh, the next best thing, go to raygun.com. Yeah, it's not Jarvis, but it it will tell you where the problem is so you can go fix it. You can get a free trial right now if you want. It's raygun.com. Yeah. So Christian, one thing I'm always curious about with open source projects like this, like who is Preact? Like I I, I really know nothing about the project. Like who maintains it? I'm curious like how you got involved with it. Like is there any relationship with the the actual, like the core React team? Like I, I'm very curious about just the logistics of how the project runs itself. Yeah, thank you for the question. Maybe I, I didn't do enough uh, <laughs> description of the project. So Preact was started by Jason, Jason Miller. Jason is a developer advocate at Google. So I think he just, when React came out, he was just trying out to build, to learn React. And he ended up building his own library, basically to write the same thing, but smaller in size. So basically that's how he started. Now, the team, we don't really have a, a direct connection with the main React team <laughs> at, at Meta, but we do have through network and connections, we do talk to each other from time to time. And we, we kind of like, I know, ask for, you know, implementations, awareness that we're, you know, either encountering or they are, I know, maybe they're not doing it in a way that we are, we were thinking about doing it. For example, the hooks package. React is doing it in a way, we're doing it in another way, obviously more smaller, <laughs> but oh, you know, in a in a in a different implementation detail basically. So yeah, this, there's no direct connection, but you know, we do from time to time, you know, get the conversation going. Is it keeping up with the stuff like concurrent mode? Is that in there? No. So concurrent mode, that's something that I think let me remember, but but I think we didn't include it because it didn't make sense. Mm. Because yeah, it's sort of an architectural yeah, yeah. enhancement to React. Yeah. yeah. Concurrent mode was really useful when you had like a synthetic event system and you have to queue them and then you have to like, you know, dispatch them and things like that. And you have to do it in a frame. With Preact, you know, it's more low level, closer to the metal. I would say, I think for, <laughs> for a long time, we had that motto closer to the metal. Yeah. So yeah, concurrent mode was not, uh, it's not part of Preact because even the end user or the, authors who are writing in React, they usually don't are not aware of concurrent mode. You know, they're just, you know, it might be there or might not be there. So their their direct connection with concurrent mode, it's not not that obvious that we have to do it. And also our we don't really we we wanna follow React's API surface as close as we can, but if something doesn't make sense for Preact or for the web in its entirety. <laughs> then we should we should just take a pause and uh, and look deeper into it. Yeah. For, but for example, suspense is in Preact because, you know, it's useful. Oh, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. 
So let me back up a little bit. I think that mm-hmm. you mentioned that you actually got into being part of the Preact core team by fixing a bug in their code. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did it kind of go from you noticed one thing and fixed it to you're now a core team member? Did you just keep digging into stuff like that as you were using Preact? Yeah, pretty much. So uh, let me <laughs> let me take back. I think I think we were having issues with the server-side rendering injection of HTML. And we discovered the bug. And, you know, I just wanted to get it fixed in version 8. And then we... Uh, and, I, and I opened up the, the pull request to open in version 8. And then Jason reached out and he was like, well, well wait, we're, we're, we're actually working on a new version. So... Do you mind fixing it there as well? So then, so then I had to be included in all the conversations going about the new version. And then I started contributing to it more and more. And at the end of the day, it happened. And you know, I was included in the, in the core team. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a perfect way experience. to get into open source. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was quite, quite cool. I mean, and also we're using Slack for our main ways of, I know, talking with the community, but in, there's so many useful conversations going in the, in the Slack channel as well, because folks are not just encountering Preact or React issues, right? They have all sorts of questions like, you know, how do I properly alias uh, React to Preact? Or is this does this make sense to, I don't know, to be in Preact or, you know, stuff like that. And you'll always, you're always like learning about how folks are using your library by just listening to the community. And Preact is really welcoming in that regard. I mean, the kindness and empathy that, you know, you see there from from the team members is, yeah, I've never seen it before. So, yeah. Yeah, that's tough, too. And that's always the thankless part of open source, too, because that those are the parts that, man, like it, you can spend endless time uh, answering Mm -hmm. people. So and you get for all the nice people that come in, you have to deal with some of the crazies and the people that are very demanding. So it requires, <laughs> yeah. it requires quite a bit of patience. Yeah. <laughs> specific issues. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. You wish they would read the fine manual first. <laughs> so speaking of which, though, so let's say Goober is an example. If I'm thinking about making my own open source library, what kind of time commitment do you have on just kind of the daily maintenance of, of Goober? Like how much of it is an hour a day, hour a week, now that it's going, like for fielding questions and bug yeah. reports and PRs and all that? Yeah, I'm I'm usually a notification freak. So uh, <laughs> if I got a notification from somewhere, I, I got to check it out. So if it's something that I can answer on the spot, I'll do it on the spot. If not, I'll have to mark it as unread and come to it later. You know what? I, I, I don't think I have or I ever like tracked the time <laughs> that I worked on Goober. It was just if it happens and I'm at the computer, I, I'll, I'll check it out and I'll do it. So that that's a good uh, that's a good exercise that I'll should, I should I should do that <laughs> just, to, <laughs> just to see if at the end of the month does it make sense or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, obviously, okay. financially it does not, but yeah, that's, <laughs> it could it could pay off. You never know. But I guess the question yeah. might also be how long did it take you to start building Goober before you had something that you felt like this is a pretty good product that other you know, other people might want to use in their own applications. Do you remember? I think I think it was beginning of 2019 when I did Goober or released Goober in February or something like that. And I was working on this website 
And then I worked on a Nando website and I just, I remember that I, I had that snippet because it was just a gist, a GitHub gist in the beginning. And, and, and at that point, I realized, okay, I, I should make a library out of this because for me, I'll have to reuse it over and over again. It just makes sense. And I think when I was trying to publish it on NPM, I realized that, you know, if finding a name was so, <laughs> it was so fitting and everything, you know, it was, it was there. I don't know. It, it was a light bulb moment, I guess. Okay. And so this was kind of more of an existing <laughs> thing that you were had already built and were using and yeah. just decided this is useful for me. Other people might also want to. Yeah. But it happened yeah. really fast. I think January 2019 and then. By the middle of February, I, I already have it published. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. But I think the initial version was under 800 bytes. So I think that was like the the, the tweet or the catchphrase. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yes, but now it's gotten so big. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> so actually, Silly. on that note, I'm curious, since like building small libraries is kind of it seems to be your thing building or working on them. Do you have any tips along those lines? Like, are there any tricks that you find you consistently apply or like that this is like a quick win to reduce file size? Because, you know, we have this might not be applicable for your average developer building your average app. But if you're I mean, for library developers, this is very important because you commonly want your your things to be as small as possible. So for other like library developers out there that might be listening, like what are some things that you, you know, some techniques you apply or tricks you might have to get the sizes down? That's a that's a good question. And yeah, I think you're right. We should differentiate between um, library authors and then authors of websites because <laughs> the shaving the size of a website, uh, you know, is something that is different, you know, in, in terms of like choosing your libraries, offloading the JavaScript as much as possible from your initial load and stuff like that. Now for library authors, it's just more about coding style, right? How you write your code and so on. Now, for me, what worked for Goober, I'm not sure if it's a, it's if this is true for other libraries, is trying to ignore as much as possible ESLint <laughs> from from you know underlying the the you know the, the weirdness like you know using just double equal in lo <laughs> in place of <laughs> tri triple equal and stuff like that and mm -hmm. then just using null as a way of checking for false values and passing that along also instead of having a string constant you know you might use a number or a, or a hex value you know for that matter and it's also useful so i have this I'll I'll get the link later. Uh, so it's it's kind of like a gzip thermal viewer. So basically, you have your your document or your I don't know your your value, which is a string, and the gzip thermal value uh, thermal viewer is showing you which character is used more. Because I think with gzip, if you use it three times or more, it gets compressed right. better. Yeah. So I think that was like my my main debugger for <laughs> for size difference is like the flags name, the properties, then you know all this minification stuff that was happening. I was looking at the output and then putting it in there and then figure out, okay, ah. I need a new flag. Which name should I or which character should I pick out of this like red and bluish <laughs> grid? Oh man, that's fascinating. I it is back when I kind of worked on jQuery, the jQuery project would do this to a certain extent as well. Like 
but I didn't know there were tools for helping do this, but they would compare the, the GZIP output. And there were people on the team that knew the GZIP algorithm quite Ooh. well, because it, like you said, it essentially takes like common strings and like replaces them with a symbol more or less. So if you yeah. can reuse like chunks of strings, it can actually help you significantly. But to have like a thing that's like giving you almost like a live view into helping optimize that is is kind of crazy to, to me. That's really <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, it is. It was a so, great find. Yeah. Okay. All right. I got to geek out on this. So <laughs> do you do you actually use the minifier as is or do you actually minify basically the variable names yourself and you're just like, heck with it. I can, I can do a better job. No, no, no. I, I'm using the minifier. Okay. I used to. I used to have some kind of control in place to just minify my own lab, my own variables, but it was getting out of hand, and it just it wasn't. <laughs> I couldn't keep track. Like, I cannot possibly read this code. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but when I say like pick, picking up the property names, uh, you know, it's like when you pass some arguments in form of an object, and you, and those arguments, you know, the object the properties inside the object are named right that that's point, not going to get modified exactly yeah, yeah. so you gotta right. you gotta be clever about it and just figure out which character i should use here <laughs> so it'll just compress by this yeah. yeah oh my gosh yeah i i'm guessing are you are you anti typescript for your libraries <laughs> because like because i'm wondering i i have to imagine the typescript compiler is going to introduce some bloat into the output i i would think at least <laughs> so I think that used to be the case for the TypeScript compiler to inject some some things in there that you might not want to have in there. But that, I think this we're not there anymore. I think that TypeScript yeah. compiler is just like you know outputting as close to the mental as possible. But for that case, when it was the case when you know you got the bloat inside your inside your bundles from the TypeScript, I was kind of against it. <laughs> but I turned now. I pivoted towards TypeScript and I'm using it daily and. It's oh, nice. it's useful, but at the same time, I'm not sure if I if I'm there yet, as in to rewrite Goober with TypeScript. <laughs> so I think that would be like the <laughs> the point where I'm completely in the TypeScript world. But yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe we'll get there, but <laughs> I don't have any guarantees. Yeah, because I feel like the things you're talking about about like shortcuts in terms of like the things ESLint comp complains about, like TypeScript yeah. would also probably not be your friend there. <laughs> too. <laughs> or maybe exactly. it would be, you know, if you yeah. got weird yeah. variable names, you know, at least you can get the, the type hinting on your like a, you know, the AAA one. Oh wait, that's a number. AAA two, that's the string, you know, <laughs> but what, okay. Well, let me just dispel the whole like the TypeScript bloat thing. It depends on what your target is. Yeah. If your target is like ES next, it's not going to add anything. If your target's like ES5, of course it's going to add stuff. Everything's an add, like yeah. there was no for each. I mean there was you know, there's like there was nothing, right? So mm -hmm. there was no for yeah. of that has to go and shim all that stuff. So Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good target. Yeah, exactly. And this applies to every bundler, right? Who compiles yeah. your JavaScript yeah. code. So Yeah. It's just yeah. yeah, and we're talking about a pretty niche situation here, like building yeah. a library that's whole goal is to say small is like not your average thing that you're developing to. It's <laughs> pretty specialized, specialized yeah. Uh, use case. Yeah, yeah, it can't be well, everything it would, to everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would be interesting to, to see if we could take some of those things that you've learned building out really small. Yeah, you because know, I mean, at the end of the day, like I, I've been seeing people like rolling around like, oh, 10 megabyte of JS up to the client, you know, it's hokey, but not terrible. <laughs> it's 10 megabytes. 
lights. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, that's insane. You know, and uh, people, they just like, it just, they don't, don't even think about it. Right. Yeah. And so maybe there's some things like, eh, you know, he could still do this. You could, you know, there's some things that you could do. Yeah. Not to be crazy. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I can understand them why they, they are shipping 10 megabytes because they want to be productive. You know, they, they want to build stuff yeah. and they want to ship it. And honestly, maybe it's better to ship something that's maybe bloated and then take a step back, breathe a little, and then go in and make sure that you're not shipping 10 megabytes anymore. But then you have that problem. And maybe you don't know about the problem until you're shipping your product or your website. So yeah, I think there's like silver lining there. But yeah, yeah. If you're doing a proof of concept, then... Fine. Fine. Wait, isn't every product a proof of concept? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like it. Uh, yeah. uh, wait. Well, Christian, this has been an awesome chat. Is there is there anything else that we've missed that you want to mention before we get into our picks? Anything with your open source work or anything else you want to highlight that we haven't gotten to? No, I think I think that's about it. Just use Gruber <laughs> as much as you can <laughs> and take a, take a look at Preact.js whenever you can. <laughs> Cool. And we'll make sure to get those linked up in the show notes as well. Yeah. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out. And, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So why don't we move on to our picks? And Jack, do you want to kick us off today? Sure. So I've been geeking out on this guy on YouTube, James Hoffman. He's a, a coffee guy out of the UK. Oh. And he gets so into the the science and the mechanics. And his presentation style <laughs> is just so soothing. It's like kind of watching like a, a lo-fi kind of music, you know, track, plus getting a little bit of knowledge about coffee. And I'm not going to do any of this. I mean, everything that he shows is like, here's a thousand $1,500 coffee grinder. Are you <laughs> kidding me? No, I'm never going to buy that. It's not a thing. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, it's just like, wow, okay, this is really cool. And I, I actually have tried it some more espresso recently. And I got to say everything in my neighborhood, the espresso is terrible. So I'm going back to watch this. <laughs> but it's really fun to watch. Awesome. It's always fun to dream. <laughs> oh, yeah. $1,500 coffee. Coffee grinder. <laughs> Paige, do you have any picks for us? Sure. So my pick this week is going to be a technical pick. It is actually uh, the Twilio API for any developers who are interested or looking to do SMS type of uh, work. I used this recently for a little IoT project that I put together for an anti-theft tracker using one of the products that I work with, um, I work for a company called Blues Wireless and we make IoT products. So mm -hmm. I wanted to use one of our products to alert people if it started moving 
for something like, you know, environmental monitoring stations or statues or just something valuable that you have on your land that you know shouldn't be moving. And if it is, something's going really wrong. So one of the very cool things was that it's really easy to set up a Twilio kind of starter account, assign a number to it, and then just start using it to send SMS messages. So it was, like I said, it was very simple. It was the documentation was really good. So if you need something like that for SMS alerts, I would definitely recommend looking into it and uh, giving it a spin. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, Twilio is awesomely useful. Like I still, I still can't believe how easy they make (laughs) SMS, which is not the most fun thing to deal with. (laughs) Yeah, and they give you a little bit of a starter money so you don't have to put in a credit card immediately and you can just kind of try it out and see what you think of it cool my pick for this week is an ios app called big right b-i-g-w-r-i-t-e it is the world's simplest app all it is is you gives you an input you type in a message and i'm going to hold it up for my co-host here it just shows the message in like big, as big of font that'll possibly fit on the phone and in high contrast, you'd be surprised how often that comes in handy. Like anytime you're at, you need to whisper something to somebody and it's really hard to, you can just type it out in the app. Or what I discovered recently, anytime it's, you're in a loud event, right? Like a sporting event and you need to tell somebody something and you can't hear a damn thing. Well, you can just type it out on the phone and hold it up and see it. Or like you can see it across. The, I don't know. I, I've just—it's a silly little app, right? It's but it's just really well executed, and it solves a problem. So if you've ever ran into that before, it's just a fun one to have on your phone that you can use. Hmm. Interesting, fan. That's pretty cool. Christian, what picks do you have? Okay, so uh, I'm I'm a parent. So <laughs> recently, I don't know why, but I got into this YouTube show, I guess, with World Strictest Parents, and. <laughs> It's kind of weird because to me, they don't look strict. <laughs> and it's each each episode is like an internal debate with myself. Wait, so what, what does that mean if I don't consider them to be strict? Does that mean that I'm stricter than them? You know, it's just like going back and forth. But I'm not strict. <laughs> so kids, if you listen to this in the future, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not strict at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Christian, uh, last question for you. If people want to follow you, keep up with you, that sort of thing, what's what's the best place to do that? So I guess Twitter, my handle is ChristianBoat underscore because apparently it's taken <laughs> the, <laughs> the other one, not by me. And yeah, also GitHub, the, the Google repo. And uh, you can find me on Slack on, on the Preact space as well. Yeah, and everywhere on the internet, I guess, if you... If you search for me. Cool. Well, it was awesome chatting with you. I had a, yeah. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was great. Nice seeing you. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. All right, everybody. Until next week. See you then. See you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.